I have this really clear memory from 10 years ago. It was in the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and I was sitting on the floor in a hall, not far from where Ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson were telling congressional leaders that the financial world was about to fall apart. And when they came out to talk to reporters, I focused on Bernanke's hands. They were shaking. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. This week, what happened at Bear Stearns exactly 10 years ago and how it changed people's lives and led to that moment where I was sitting on the floor. Plus, some of my colleague Kai Rizdahl's chat with Ben Bernanke, Tim Geithner, and Hank Paulson. But first, healthcare in the U.S. costs a lot of money. In fact, we as a country spend twice as much as other rich countries and we're actually less healthy. The why behind this has been something people have been trying to figure out for years. Conventional wisdom is that Americans use more healthcare, but a group of researchers has some new information that doesn't fit into the old theories. One of them is Dr. Ashish Jha from Harvard's Global Health Initiative. He joined us on the show, and I asked him to explain what they found. Well, you know, we didn't set out to flip the conventional wisdom. We actually just try to figure out what's going on, because uh, that has been the conventional wisdom, and yet it's really not been based on any data partly because it's been hard to get comparable data from other countries. Mm. And so we try to really understand what was happening, what, what explains the higher healthcare spending in the U.S. And, you know, what we found was that for some things we do a little bit more, for other things we do a little less. And on average, we're about average. So what is driving the costs up? I mean, we spent almost 18 percent of our GDP on healthcare in 2016. Yeah. So we're, look, we do spend twice as much as other high-income countries, other European countries like Germany and France and UK. And it's really primarily about prices. So we spend more on administrative costs. Our health system is much more complex, and, and that's a part of it. But the big offender here is healthcare prices. It's prices for everything. Drugs, tests, doctors and nurses' salaries. Everything is just much higher here. Well, is that because, uh, and I know I'm going to get letters on this, but is that because a lot of these other countries have government-run systems and we have, you know, a, a patchwork of different private insurers? What's interesting is if you think about how other countries are able to manage their prices, there are really two mechanisms. Some countries have a very strong government system, a, a strong government price setter that keeps prices low. Other countries have more efficient markets, and markets can keep prices low. Uh, we figured out how to do the worst of both worlds, right? We have yay for in us. Medicare, yay, exactly. So <laughs> we have in Medicare a weak price setter that does not do a good job of setting prices. I think it just overpays for a lot of things. And then most of our markets are pretty inefficient because providers have a lot of market power, and so we just end up paying through the nose for all sorts of stuff that should be much cheaper. I was really struck looking at your study, how much pharmaceuticals cost here in the U.S. compared to other countries. Can you tell me a little bit about what you guys found there? We found that pharmaceuticals, comparable drugs, are about three times higher here than they are in most Western European countries. Um, now, pharmaceuticals make up about 15% of healthcare spending. So that doesn't explain the bulk of why our healthcare spending is so much higher, but it certainly contributes to it. Pharmaceuticals are one place where, you know, the pharma companies at least have an argument, which is they say, look, 
America pays for all the innovation that goes on in pharmaceuticals around the world. And, and we looked at that. We looked at um, new chemical entities, new drugs that are developed. And there's no doubt about it. America is really the innovation uh, engine of the world. The downside is that the American consumers are paying for all that innovation. And of course, everybody else is benefiting from it. You, you mentioned innovation. I guess one question I have is if the U.S. is going to be this center for innovation and, you know, to some degree, people are going to subsidize that with, with high prices. Is there a way to keep doing innovation while bringing prices down? There are two parts of high pharmaceutical prices that I think we should think about, and, and we should think about them separately. First of all, we have often very high prices for generic drugs. That has nothing to do with innovation. That just has to do with some pretty bad regulatory you know, rules we have where, for instance, we don't allow for generic importation from Germany or France or, or the UK. You know, those countries have really good generics. We could, we could import those drugs without hurting innovation at all. So that's a place where we clearly should just really have policies that bring down generic drug prices. And by the way, generics make up 80% of all pharmaceutical sales in America. So that can have a big impact. Yeah. The harder question is around uh, brand name drugs, new drugs, new treatments, new cancer drugs, new stroke drugs. That is harder. And if we cut prices on those, we will hurt innovation to some extent. And that just becomes a policy decision. You know, how much are we willing to live with fewer new treatments um, and pay lower prices? Uh, that's a trade-off. That, th there's no free lunch there. So this may be an unfair question to ask you, but Given what you've assembled and what you know, where should we go from here? There are no simple solutions. And the biggest thing to know is when you look across the European countries, uh, no system looks like the other. So whatever solution we come up with is going to have to be a uniquely American solution. I think there are some policies where we should be able to get some strong bipartisan support. Um, one of the problems of high health care prices is the incredible amount of power that, that provider, market power that providers have. Hospitals, health systems, they've been getting bigger. Um, we need really strong enforcement of our antitrust laws because when health mm. systems get bigger, they charge much higher prices. That should be pretty bipartisan. We should be able to have more competition in the marketplace. There may be areas where we want to look at price regulation, maybe areas where we want to give CMS a bit more authority to negotiate prices. Center for Medicare and Medicaid services. Yeah, sorry, Medicare, the agency that's, you know, the biggest payer of healthcare in America. It's just, it is a little bit of an issue of political will there because Congress is going to have to allow that to happen because anytime you cut anybody's prices, you're eating into their profits. And of course, you know, uh, they scream loudly and, and Congress usually steps in and defends them and the American taxpayer loses. Dr. Ashish Jha is the director of the Harvard Global Health Initiative and the leader of the research team that uh, put together this paper. Thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And since it's St. Patrick's Day weekend, we've got a story about beer. Okay, fine. It's actually about kegs. American-made steel kegs. Remember those tariffs President Trump put in place, 25% on most imported steel? It turns out they could have some unintended consequences for the only company in the U.S. making beer kegs out of American steel. Paul Zacker is the CEO of the American Keg Company in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and he came to our New York studio. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me on. Can you explain to me just how 
an American steel beer keg is made? Like, what goes into that? So the, the basic process is we'll order jumbo rolls of steel, stainless steel, and then we'll fabricate that through, throughout our manufacturing facility. It takes uh, approximately two hours to make one keg. Uh, and then uh, we ship it out to our customers. There's uh, approximately six to 7,000 uh, craft brewers, cideries, and wineries that will purchase stainless steel beer kegs. And you guys are the last company that makes American steel kegs. Yes, we're the only company in the United yeah. States making stainless steel beer kegs. Why? Is it just that much more expensive to do it with U.S. steel? Or? Uh, yes, right now it's definitely more expensive <laughs> to do it with U.S. steel. Well, I've got you in here to talk about tariffs. So w- what do these steel tariffs do to your business? I think when the, the tariffs came out, it was probably a, a good idea. I'm sure the steel industry needs some protection. But there's some unintended consequences for companies such as us that have competition that make imports. And on the U.S. side, our cost for domestic steel is going to increase because of these tariffs. As the import steel um, goes up in cost, so does the domestic steel. Is the price of your kegs going to go up? Yes. It's already up. Um, as the tariff discussions were taking place, uh, domestic steel was starting to increase in the fourth quarter and continue to increase here in the first quarter. What does that mean for your customers? Well, there's always been a, a delta between a, a USA-made keg and an import keg. Maybe explain what a delta is. For uh, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> a, a price difference yeah. between a U.S. keg and an import keg. Today, um, you can probably buy an import keg at around $95, and a USA-made keg is going to be around $115. The sort of wrinkle here is that finished products are not subject to the tariffs. That's correct. The finished products for kegs and many other products coming into the U.S. is at a 0% tariff. We have customers calling uh, saying, hey, how can we help? We had one gentleman call, uh, stated he was a veteran and he doesn't buy kegs, but he'll buy a keg and have many of his other friends really? buy one keg. Yeah, so it was, uh, that was a great voicemail to hear that. Are you losing customers? Yes. It's a difficult situation right now. Uh, we have a lot of patriotic customers that want to buy USA-made uh, kegs with U.S. labor and U.S. steel. Uh, but they're only going to go so far um, as that price difference continues to rise. I know you've had to downsize a little bit. Um, this is a rough time. What needs to happen for you to stay afloat? We would say at this point there's some unfinished business. So uh, companies out there that have low-cost imports coming in um, for finished product that has a high content of steel, uh, we're going to need to see some uh, uh, help on those tariffs. So today, another t- another round of tariffs, you'd say? Uh, yeah, not across the board, but specific industries that uh, are harmed by this and also have import competition using low-cost steel. You know, we're, we're sitting here talking about kegs. Your business is really in many ways a story about globalization and how much of what we buy and use and consume comes from overseas. And yet we also think about American jobs. When you go home at night and sort of think about where you fit into this globalization story, what do you think? Well, it's a very complex uh, topic. And, yeah. and I think a lot of people have been wrestling it for many years. I think what we would say is that uh, we would put our engineers, our production employees, our entire team against anyone in the world. Uh, we just need a level playing field. So I think uh, some of these industries are going to need some help from the government to look at that. If you had the chance to sit down with the president, what would you tell him? I would say we're very in favor to bringing more jobs back to the U.S. We're uh, absolutely excited about uh, rejuvenating manufacturing in the U.S., and we want to see economic growth. So um, 
please look at all the variables that we need to do to achieve those goals. Do you think that's possible? Do you think having a a really strong manufacturing economy in the U.S. is um, is something that's possible when you look at, at prices overseas? I think so. I think if you look at uh, American labor, I think they're as competitive as anyone else in the world. Paul Zucker, thank you very much for talking with me. Uh, thank you for having me on. been a sad week for the world of science with the loss of luminary Stephen Hawking. So here's a look at the news by the numbers, the Hawking edition, with Marketplace's Eliza Mills and Tony Wagner. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 76. That's how old physicist Stephen Hawking was when he died earlier this week. His discoveries about the universe enlightened and inspired millions. Take our next number, for example. More than 10 million. Copies of Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, have been published since 1988. The book is about physics and cosmology, but was intended for a broad audience. It includes a chapter titled, Black Holes Ain't So Black. And if exploding black holes can't get people interested in space, nothing can. Four. That's how many times Stephen Hawking guest starred on The Simpsons. He also made time for appearances on Star Trek and The Big Bang Theory. And was played by actor Eddie Redmayne in a film about his life, The Theory of Everything. Hawking has been to all seven continents and took a zero-gravity flight. In honor of Dr. Hawking, we'll leave you with a quote. It would not be much of a universe if it wasn't home to the people you love. At the top of the show, I told you what it felt like when I was covering the financial crisis 10 years ago, and that moment when I saw Ben Bernanke's hands shake. Well, this week, 10 years ago, Ben Bernanke, Hank Paulson, and Tim Geithner helped craft a deal to sell Bear Stearns to J.P. Morgan Chase with the help of the federal government. Bear had invested big time in subprime mortgages and was quickly running out of cash. Bernanke was the Fed chair, Paulson the Treasury secretary, and Geithner the head of the New York Fed. The three of them sat down this week with my colleague Kai Rizdahl for a rare group interview. It's part of our special project, Divided Decade, about the financial crisis and its legacy. Let me, let me start uh, the substantive part of this with Bear Stearns Weekend. Ten years ago, basically this week, uh, the Fed's role in it, providing the backstop uh, for the bear assets to let J.P. Morgan come in and do it. One of the things that um, has become paradigmatic through this entire 10 years is the way the Fed's role changed. I want to ask you about your misgivings in Bear Weekend, knowing you were going to have to lean in and start doing things the Fed had never done before using extraordinary authority. Well, I was, I was of course, you know, reluctant to, uh, to invoke powers that hadn't been used for many years. And I was worried about the political backlash, the effects on the Federal Reserve. But it was a decision the three of us made, and I felt very comfortable with the decision that uh, if Bear Stearns had failed uh, in an uncontrolled way, that it would have reverberated throughout the financial system, caused a lot of damage, and probably brought the financial crisis forward by at least six months. I wonder whether um, uh, you would agree with this statement, all three of you, that, that Bear Stearns was the moment people really started paying attention. You guys had been living with this for a long time, 18 months, two years, knowing it, all of you say in your books you knew it was coming. Um, do you think people really – it focused people's minds, Hank? Well, it, it – it, and I think focused the public's mind in a big way. Right. There had been a lot of focus in the markets. Yep. And I, I want to come back to what Ben said. 
because I, I believe in many ways this was one of the most impactful things that we did together. And it was, it was interesting because the three of us come from different political parties, different back, backgrounds. You know, Ben had been, you know, just a world-class uh, economist. It studied the Great Depression. Tim had worked in the uh, in the Rubin Treasury. He had a lot of experience of working through a crisis before I'd come from from Wall Street. But none of us debated at any length as to whether it would be a big problem if Bear Stearns had failed. We all knew that. So the question is, what should we do about it? And I would tell you, the other thing is we got very lucky that weekend because we had a buyer. We yeah. came up with a buyer. And if we hadn't, as Ben said, I, I very strongly believe this would have accelerated everything. Uh, if Bear had gone down, Lehman would have gone down right away. We would not have yet fixed and the, you know, the Fannie and Freddie, right. those big mortgage giants with $5.4 trillion in security. So I think that the we would have had something that would have been an order of magnitude more difficult if we hadn't, hadn't taken that action. I want to get to all that sequentially because because the order in which these things happened, it's clear now 10 years later, really matters, right? But I want to ask you, Tim, something uh, that you say in your book, um, uh, that you, you uh, you'd had a history uh, of working with economic crises. This is what you did in the Treasury, your first go-around. Um, you say you know what a crisis and a panic smell like. What does a crisis smell like? It's hard to describe that in some ways the, 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 what it was really like in terms of the panic, but, you know, you could hear it in people's voices when they talked to you. You know, if you talk to people in the financial system or around the world at that time, people who were, you know, like in a relatively enviable position, strong, competent, smart, experienced people, you could hear in their voices for the first time in my, my lifetime a, a level of fear about the existential risk to the country, to the system that – uh, I don't know how to capture it beyond that. That was former Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner. We also heard from his predecessor, Hank Paulson, and the former Fed chair, Ben Bernanke. These three came together to talk about what happened, their biggest regrets, and our ability to fight the next financial crisis. You can hear more from Kai Rizdal's interview on Monday's Marketplace broadcast or download the Marketplace PM podcast so you don't miss any of it. Now we have the story of two people whose lives were altered forever on that weekend when Bear Stearns was sold to J.P. Morgan in what you could call a government-backed shotgun marriage. 9,000 workers ultimately lost their jobs, and it wasn't just the people at the top. Marketplace's Amy Scott has this story of one couple who met at Bear Stearns and how they've moved on. Justin Brannon was a punk. I mean, professionally. In his teens and 20s, he played guitar in hardcore bands. The first band was called Indecision, and then the other band is called Most Precious Blood. We're just a hardcore punk band, uh, you know, vegetarians. We were straight edge, the whole deal. We toured the world. Um, it was great. But touring got old, and after 10 years on the road, he was ready for something more stable. This was 2006, when Wall Street banks, leveraged to the hilt, were raking in record profits. A temp agency got Justin an interview for an entry-level job at Bear Stearns Asset Management. 
and in walks Justin, a big guy, and I immediately spotted the ends of like full sleeve tattoos sticking out under the cuffs of his of his shirt and above his collar. This is Doug Ray. At the time, he managed a group called Documentation and Fulfillment at Bear. They distributed marketing materials for hedge funds and other alternative investments. Ray interviewed Justin. As we talked, Justin was really forthright about his background and the experience he brought was like heavy metal. <laughs> to a, to a corporate banking environment. But Justin was an obvious people person, and he'd managed his band's international tours. The more I thought about it, the more I was impressed and could see a fit. He came into the group, and he was, he was fantastic. It worked out amazingly well. Justin was happy, too. And I liked it because I was working with people who were like, street kids just like me who, you know, had worked their way up and were just happy to be like clerks earning a paycheck, you know. Bear Stearns had a reputation as kind of an outsider on Wall Street, more blue collar than white shoe, a place where you could work your way up from the mailroom. Their whole thing was always that we don't care if you have an Ivy League degree, we care that you have a PSD, which was poor, smart and determined or something like that. Uh, and that was us. One day while making a delivery for his boss, Justin met Lee Holiday, an executive assistant in the corporate real estate division. She was like so out of my league that I just started hitting on her like really badly. Uh, but we just like clicked. And then it turned out, though, she had been a fan of one of my bands. Indecision. Yeah. <laughs> Lee was another unlikely Wall Street worker, an artist and former teacher who'd taken a corporate job to pay the bills. The connection was instant. I just needed to know more. And so once I Googled him and figured out that it actually was him, I thought, oh, I really have to start this conversation. They started emailing in code. Workplace relationships were frowned upon. So we'd be writing words backwards. And now thinking back, I think the compliance department was a little bit busy with, you know, other things. When I first met Justin and Lee, it was 2009, a year after Bear went under. And they talked about what it was like in the months leading up to the crisis. In the summer of 2007, Justin's division was forced to close two hedge funds when the value of their mortgage-backed securities plummeted. But Justin was living large. He bought a tie once a week. Yeah, I used to, on my point. lunch breaks, I would go to like uh, Saks and buy a Hermes tie. Because for me, it was like, like I won the lottery. You know, it was a goof. And because I lived so meagerly that making the salary as like a, a clerk, basically, a Bear Stearns, it was still more than I ever imagined. And, and I loved it. And then in early 2008, he started noticing the big bosses were around more. There were hushed conversations on the phone. It was a Friday in March, and we were just watching the ticker, watching the stock, and we were like, holy... You know, yeah, you could literally watch it fall. It was just going and going. We were like, so sad. when it gets to 10, can we go home? Like, what's going on? And then during the weekend, um, well, Lee could tell it better, I mean... Yeah, it was a Sunday. I was at the drugstore getting some things, and one of the senior directors that I worked for called me and said, I would bring a shopping bag with you tomorrow because we may be going bankrupt tonight. Bear didn't go bankrupt. That Sunday, the Fed and Treasury orchestrated a bailout. J.P. Morgan Chase would buy the bank for a fraction of what its market value had been just days before. And before long, both Justin and Lee were gone. 
So 10 years later, I have to go to a publicist to get you on the phone. (laughs) Big time. We're big time. When I find Justin all these years later, he's running for city council to represent Bay Ridge, the neighborhood where he grew up in Brooklyn. I'm going to need four because I'm doing a hot dog. Lee is running her own art school for young children called The Art Room. Do you want to know what these are? These lines? They're called action lines. Can you guys say that? Action lines. Good. After Bear, Lee stayed on at J.P. Morgan for a while and then got a similar job at Credit Suisse. But her heart wasn't in it. And in 2010, I saw a for rent sign in the window where we are now at 8710 Third Avenue. And I called the woman that night and we made it happen. Some of the seed money came from her severance from Bear Stearns. Justin raised funds for a nonprofit, then got into city government. I really fell in love with local politics and municipal-level politics because someone would walk into the office and with a problem, big or small, whatever it is, and you help them with that problem and you send them on their way. And it was this, this is how the system is supposed to work, you know? In 2012, they decided to get married and they knew just where to do it. I called up Ace Greenberg, who was obviously still alive at the time, probably had a rotary phone at his desk. Alan Ace Greenberg was the legendary former CEO of Bear Stearns, who'd overseen its collapse as chairman of the executive committee. He'd stayed on at J.P. Morgan Chase after the takeover. Justin pulled some strings to get him on the phone. I said, Ace, I met my wife at Bear. You know, um, we really want to get married in the lobby. He's like, all right, I'll see what I can do. We'll make it happen. And he just hung up. And I was like, all right, Ace said yes. (laughs) So... Next thing you know, we were, like, measuring the space for how many chairs we could fit and stuff. But it just made sense. Somewhat controversial. I mean, you know, for some people, I think, you know, why would you want to sort of highlight this place that sort of meant the demise of, like, a lot of things? And for um, us, that's not what it was. You know, for us, it wasn't about that. We just have an affinity for Bear in a way that I don't think anybody else in the world does. Tonight, we hold a debate for one of the few races where a Democrat and a Republican are neck and neck. In October of 2017, Justin debates his Republican opponent, John Quaglione, on cable's New York One. Bay Ridge is a historically white working class neighborhood with a fast growing Arab and immigrant population. And the country's deep political divide is playing out in the local city council race. Here's Justin. Uh, John, I mean, you've made your support uh, for Donald Trump very clear. I guess my question to you is, with all these issues, the Muslim ban, the wall, uh, rescinding DACA, the divisive rhetoric against women and immigrants, how do you expect voters to support you? Well, first of all, I voted for a guy. You could vote for somebody, but you don't agree on everything that, that they vote for. You probably voted for Hillary Clinton. I'm sure you don't agree on everything that Hillary Clinton vote stands for. You guys going to vote? Yes, we are. Did you vote for Justin Braddon? You got it. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. On election night, I meet Justin standing outside PS 185 in the rain, wearing a suit. He went here for elementary school. Now people are inside voting, a lot of them for him. So weird. This is like the balls in the air, you know? It's like... Does it go in the net or doesn't it, you know? 
When the polls close, he goes home to watch the results alone. Justin Brannon came out on top in a tight contest in City Council District 43, 50.6% of the vote, edging out Republican John Quaglione at 47%. A few months later, I visit Justin at his office in Bay Ridge. The sign outside reads, Love All, Serve All. The first week in office I had... There was a really bad fire. I had a water main break, a snowstorm, and a sinkhole. I was waiting for the I was waiting for the uh, the locusts and the the raining frogs. This is local politics. He spends the afternoon driving from one community event to another. In his car, he takes a call from a guy whose roofing project has been held up by the Department of Buildings. When I get back to my office, I'll make a call and, and see what's what, and then I will call you back at this number. Ten years after Bear Stearns collapsed, it's stuff like this, Justin says, can restore faith in the system. I've always felt that the government should be a tool to advance equity, but the government can't do that if the government isn't working. So when I see a pothole or a corner that needs a stop sign, that's a sign of a government that isn't working. He's pretty happy with how things worked out. I'm having a front row seat to that and seeing, you know, impacted so many people's lives across the country. For me, I mean, it really led me to what I think I was kind of scratching at, which was getting involved in public service and feeling like I was always searching for something more. And I think Lee's the same way in that it's great to make a paycheck, but but there's that's not enough. Yeah, I, I would joke with my bosses all the time. Any, anywhere I would end up, I would say, you know, oh, no, I'm a teacher at heart. I'm not planning on making this a career. And and I think that's a lot. I mean, the, the Bear Stearns diaspora, I think there's a lot of people that ended up doing some some cool stuff that they may not have done had this not happened. Next, he heads out for a ribbon-cutting ceremony at a new doggy daycare across the street. It's on three. It's a long way from punk rock and Wall Street, but right where he wants to be. In Brooklyn, New York, I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace. Thank you all. You can see pictures of Justin and Lee on their wedding day in the lobby of Bear Stearns on Instagram. We're at Marketplace APM. It's all part of our year-long series, Divided Decade. Six months ago, Hurricane Maria made landfall in Puerto Rico. According to the official death toll, 64 people lost their lives, though other counts put the total at closer to 1,000. The storm also knocked out power and destroyed homes. Thousands of people left the island, but others stayed. My investment is here. My, my, my child was born here. My family is here. My home is here. So... Um, that's why I haven't uh, considered it yet. That's Michelle Rodriguez. She's the executive director of Niños de Nueva Esperanza in the neighborhood of Sabana Seca, about 15 miles outside San Juan. It provides services to young children and, after Maria, their families, too. When we visited her back in November, piles of debris lined the streets and blue tarps flapped in the breeze on rooftops. And Michelle was trying to figure out how to keep her center open. We are a nonprofit, so we depend on activities to fundraising, and those activities um, 
where the, the major activities that we do in the year were canceled because of the emergency state. So that gives us like another um, challenge because we do pay people from the community to work with us. So how are things now? We got Michelle Rodriguez on the line. Eh, cell service is still a little patchy, but the good news is her center received grants for air conditioning and painting, and it seems the hurricane has brought some positives. For us, like uh, nonprofits, I believe um, there has been an opening of opportunities that maybe weren't there before. Uh, grants that uh, are made. If, from companies, big companies that not that are not necessarily um, based on Puerto Rico. An example could be MCS. Uh, I give that one because it, it is new for us. Oh, we, yeah, medical card. The ones that okay. reach out, yeah, reach out to us, like telling us, you know what, we have this um, budget um, specific to MCS Foundation that could be uh, available for your organization in response of the situation of Maria, right? Another um, donation that we received was Unidos por Puerto Rico, United... Mm. Um, for, the the Puerto United Rico. for Puerto Rico Fund? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been um, uh, an opportunity for us. It sounds like a lot of the nonprofit groups are, are working together, that maybe one kind of positive thing from the hurricane is some of the outside money coming to, to these nonprofits like yours. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it's creating uh, a space for, for, for us to be visible because um, many of us have been working hard for many, many years and um, never be spoken of before. Uh, so I, I think that is one uh, big opportunity that has been given to us and also the opportunity to, to like, um, create new alliances. Um, even when we are nonprofits working in the community, many of us didn't work together as we should. So now is, that is a possibility. Hmm. And I think it's a, a good thing for us also. When Sabana Seca is not a wealthy place, it's a low income community. And when we talked, you were yeah. worried about, you know, what might happen there um, kind of economically. How, how is it right now? Well, it still is a low, a low income community. Um, I'm still worried about the the population specifically because uh, we have been seeing that the people that get prepared go out, but not necessarily return to the community to give back to the community. So we have uh, a lot of uh, elderly people or disabled people, and the, that economically it, it doesn't um, look well for the community because yeah. they they are not. Um, um, being, they they cannot provide as as we would need. Uh, specifically in the the economics, may I say? Yeah. So it's 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 a little bit hard. So are people leaving? Uh, some people, yeah, and the people that leave uh, actually are the the people, the young people or prepared people. 
that can give back to the community. So mm-hmm. that, is, uh, that is a challenge for us. Before I let you go, um, how are you doing? Um, well, I think I'm, I'm fine. In that way, like a service provider, I feel great. I feel good. I know I can continue giving to our community, and that's a good thing. But uh, as uh, an individual, right, a human being, I feel tired because the, the time and the, the mental work that we had to, to, to put in all of these months has been overwhelming. Michelle Rodriguez, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to talk with us. <laughs> thank you for calling me and uh, thank you for, for having me to, to share our story. So it's been a pleasure. ago on this show, we talked about the gender wage gap. You probably know the math. For every dollar that U.S. men make, on average, women make about 80 cents, according to the U.S. Labor Department. And when you take race into account, the gap widens. Latinas make 54 cents for every dollar white men make. Black women make 63 cents. And you often hear about this from a woman's perspective. But we wanted to turn that around and look with a corporate view. Four years ago, the gap you know, the big clothing company, became the first Fortune 500 company to announce that it pays men and women equally, on average, across their workforce. And they brought in Kelly McElhaney to take a look. She's a professor at UC Berkeley and has worked with lots of companies like Levi's and NVIDIA on pay equity. Welcome. Thank you, Lizzie. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with one company you did research on, and and that is The Gap. Uh, they have about 135,000 employees globally. What did they come to you asking? They came to me and asked if I would bring in a research team to study the culture of Gap to understand how did this happen? What were the drivers of the 0% pay gap? The first thing we found, Lizzie, that females in general at Gap, when they sat down at the negotiations table, just weren't as good as some of the males who sat down at the table they said, you know, why don't you go back to your desk and let's retry this negotiation tomorrow, which is obviously an indication that the person needs to work on their negotiation style, but it allows them to actually come back and try again. So you have a couple of different factors, I should say five, that tend to affect the way pay is handed out. And some of them make a lot of sense. You know, the one we hear about a lot, unpaid care, work-life balance, something that women take on a lot. But there are others that kind of subtly start to affect who gets paid what. Can you walk me through that a bit? If you think about pay equity, it is generally an outcome of a completely different phenomenon, which is focusing on unconscious bias. Women tend to get penalized when they negotiate very aggressively, very hard, whereas a male is seen as, that's great, he's masculine, he's strong, he'll come to this company and negotiate with vendors, with service providers, whereas women are seen as, she's a little bit selfish. Well, yeah, sometimes people don't like to look under the hood, um, particularly in things where maybe they think, no, our company's doing a good job. So if you're a CEO or if you're an HR executive listening to this, What do you do and how do you move to police yourself? 
Well, the first is to collect the data, see where you are. The gaps generally aren't consistent across the company, so they'll be higher in some areas, lesser in some other job functions. They might be higher in some geographic regions. But what moves people is when I am able to collect anonymized stories from females who have experienced bias, it really wakes CEOs up to say, I need to do something here, and it can't happen overnight. It is a really complex process. You know, this isn't obviously just about salaries, which is often the thing that's talked about the most. Can you sort of help us understand how this widens out a bit? Well, it's a couple factors. And one thing I want to very much say and reiterate, we have made this a white individual phenomenon. And if you look at Latina, who are the who have the highest gap, they're in the mid-50 cent range. When you talk about African-American women, they're in the mid-60 cent range. That needs to be a part of this collective conversation. Annual salary is one metric of pay, but let's look at the bonuses. Let's look at stock options. Let's look at equity on cap tables for startups. And a lot of pay inequity is buried there. It's not being captured in pay data. A A company that's doing this right, like Gap, what are they collecting to make sure they're doing it? Well, they went back and did a a 10-year look. So doing a one-year snapshot, great data, not very effective. So they went back 10 years. When we did the gap study, I'll never forget walking into Art Peck's office, talking about the research. And I said, you know, Art, what was so interesting to me is that really what's happening inside of gap is you have a lot of processes whereby you're reducing unconscious bias. Pay is the outcome. And uh, Art just looked at me and said, congratulations, Professor. I was waiting for you to come around. <laughs> I, just, I, I loved that he said that because he's the CEO yeah. and he really understands the complexities in this space. Okay. So bottom line, you know, what's the incentive? Companies are there to make money. What's the incentive for them to, to close the pay gap? Not showing up again on the front page of the New York Times or in a po- you know in a podcast or a news story on, on NPR. Not showing up in Lizzie O'Leary's show, getting ahead of it, understanding that their competitors are doing this, that folks who purchase their services are doing this. You don't want to make a decision to not spend money in the present if in the future the problem comes out and you end up having to spend a lot of money to both go back and collect the data to try to retrofit a pay gap if you find one and to protect your brand. Kelly McElhaney, Director of the Center for Gender, Equity, and Leadership at UC Berkeley. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lizzie. If equal pay is an outcome of workplace policies, what needs to happen where you work in order to get there? Or does your company pay men and women equally? Let us know. You can send us an email. We're weekend at marketplace.org. This week, Toys R Us announced that it is liquidating, which means closing or selling all its stores. But you don't have to be a big chain to be in the toy business, as you'll learn from our next story. It's the latest in our occasional series, How to Be a Blank. This week's guest started her career at Morgan Stanley, but banking didn't do it for her. So she went back to childhood. I'm Melissa Bernstein, and I am founder and chief creative officer of Melissa and Doug. 
we specialize in open-ended toys, which are toys that don't really do anything crazy until they combine with a child and their unique experience and imagination and become something magical in the hands of a child. The process starts literally from a conception and idea, which still almost always come from me. And then we just take it from there. You know, we have this brainstorm and it's always like a, like a, ooh, one of those light bulb moments that, you know, you're, you're watching how kids play and you're looking at age old play patterns and you're suddenly saying, wait, this should be different or this should perform better or why do kids, you know, love stickers so much, but they're not in a format they really can have a fun activity through them. So it's one of those brainstorms. And then we do everything in-house. We have all our own artists. We have prototypers. We have copywriters. And we take it from that little spark to an actual product testing and honing, you know, so many times along the way. So at the end, it becomes something that we can all kind of high-five each other and look at and say, yep, we did it. When I hire new creatives, I ask them one really simple question. It's, what did you do as a child? We are about as out of the box in our thinking and the way we view things as any company I've seen. And my favorite quote is, discovery is seeing what others have seen, but thinking what no one has thought. So we are looking at the ordinary and really seeing the extraordinary in it every single day. We absolutely look for hands-on designers who have a lot of tangible experience. So many of our designers went to RISD, some went to Pratt, others were makers always through their childhood. And we want folks who have always been making things themselves with their own hands. My favorite toy is any toy that has the ability to truly impact a child's experience. You know, we get letters every day of kids who lost a pet, and our pet that looks somewhat realistic has been the one thing to comfort him or her, or stories of an animal we created that has been discontinued and a child that lost it, and a parent who's frantic, and I mean truly frantic, to find another one of these because this is their child's best friend. And I've created nearly 10,000 toys. And every one of them is my favorite. Any spark is just as bright. It is one of the most magical feelings in the world to start from literally nothing, a blank canvas, and have a little spark of an idea and turn that into something that can literally be put in a child's hands and has the ability to bring them joy and potentially even teach them something they never knew. That was Melissa Bernstein, co-founder and chief creative officer at Melissa and Doug. And that piece was produced by Eliza Mills. Got a job you want to know how to do? Ask about it. You can email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org.
Coming up next week on Marketplace Weekend, a different take on housing in the U.S. With rental and sales prices in San Francisco and the Bay Area, some of the highest in the country, a look at what this means for the region's urban Native Americans. That story next time on Marketplace Weekend. And that's it for Marketplace Weekend. This show is produced by Peter Ballinon-Rosen and Eliza Mills. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer, and Sarah Bruguere is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.